hollow footfalls echoing through empty corridors. The primal reaction of flesh brushed by an unseen touch. Shadowy figures slipping between the moss-covered bowls of ancient trees. Strange calls issuing from not-quite-human throats piercing the stillness of the night. Unusual lights and objects streaming across darkened skies. Stolen minutes and a void filled with obscured and disturbing memories. These occurrences and more are called by many whispered names in many countries around a world we believe we know so well. All of these things share a common thread. I'm Charles Romans, and welcome to the Pathways Leading to the Shadows of Legend. Today we're speaking with Jeff Waldridge. He uh, is one of the co-organizers of CryptidCon in Lexington, Kentucky every year. Uh, Mr. Waldridge, if you wouldn't mind, tell me how you got involved with with the whole interest in cryptid and uh, searching for cryptids. Well, I've always had an interest ever since I could read a book. So probably since the age of, you know, six years old or so, I was always checking books out on cryptids and strange phenomenon and UFOs and, you know, Bigfoot and all kinds of different things. So it's been a lifelong interest. And uh, I've been a paranormal researcher for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. So it's just something that uh, it kind of uh, fell into place and uh, to to do a convention. And and me and uh, Lee and Jennifer Kirkland started Crypticon, you know, several years ago. Yes. And uh, so it's kind of grown for there. So for me, it's kind of like a kid in a candy store type thing because you know, I get to talk to some of these researchers that I've read about and wanted to meet for years, and now I'm actually getting to share information with them by using the convention as a, uh, you know, as a vessel. That sounds like a, a, a perfect uh, perfect match there. It, it's, it's like a kid in a candy store. <laughs> That's a good analogy. Now, do you have uh, evidence from independent research, or uh, how, do, how would you go about gathering your evidence? Yes, I, I go out. Uh, pretty much weekly. I have several different research areas for uh, Bigfoot and things of that nature, but you know, I also get called about other different things and I, I consult with other researchers, but uh, yeah, I'm an active researcher. I go out quite frequently uh, to, to several little areas in, in uh, Kentucky. And then I also share information with other people in different parts of the state. So it's kind of uh, a passion that I enjoy uh, for entertainment, but it's also very serious work as well. It might be of interest to, to some of our listeners here. You, you mentioned it's a lot of work. What does that work entail? Because pe- people, unless they're in the middle of the, the research community, they have a tendency to think, well, they're just out walking through the woods looking for Bigfoot. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's the way it looks, you know, it, it looks, uh, you know, and then, sometimes the media gets it wrong and they'll show, you know, walking through the woods or doing this or doing that. And it's, it's some of it, but a lot of it comes down to actually talking to people that have seen things or witnessed things. And then you've got to kind of take all the eyewitness accounts and you got to put them on a map and see, well, where, where would be a good place to look for more evidence or look for more sightings. So it's really like a criminal investigation is the way I go about it. And um, that's the way a lot of people do that are, are serious, hardcore researchers is they really treat it like some type of a forensic case because the, the ultimate goal is to get, you know, validation that they have gotten something. If we can get some evidence and maybe get it to a scientific community, 
then maybe we could verify that this is a living, breathing, actual species. Well, now with Bigfoot specifically, I, I would think that uh, commonly people, you, you mentioned Bigfoot, they're thinking about uh, the woods in California. But where have been some of the other Bigfoot sightings? Because it can't just be in California. The strange fact about Kentucky, and it is actually ranked uh, pretty high up there with sightings. And when you look at it, and a lot of people say, well, I can't believe that there's Bigfoot in Kentucky. But Kentucky is like a, you know, a jungle. I mean, some parts of the state are very dense and forested, and there's mountains in certain parts. There's rivers that run through. There's lakes. So there are, you know, the resources there for some type of creature. Now, it's been sighted in Kentucky since the 1800s. Some some sightings date back to the late 1700s for diaries and things. So, I mean, it's been around for a long time. And a lot of people also ask me the question, is is there just one Bigfoot? Well, no, he's not running around the entire United States. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be a bit problematic, wouldn't it? You know, they, they look at pop culture and, and they see that. And, and that's not the way that it works. Um, you know, these these there is pretty good evidence that they are some type of living, breathing creature. And, you know, there is some evidence out there, although the scientific community does not recognize it, there's footprints and there's vocalizations that have been recorded in the state, many sightings. And I, I just think that a lot of times people don't dig enough. You know, they get a little bitty glimpse into something with an article or something of that nature, but it's just a whole lot deeper than that. I see. Now, you, you mentioned that the scientific community doesn't recognize a lot of the evidence that's gathered. Why do you think that is? Well, you got to look at it as, you know, it, it would be almost for a scientist to actually take this and recognize it and start to research it. It would almost be a death knell to that scientist's uh, career unless he was actually given this evidence by an institution or an organization to work on officially. Um, Dr. Jeff Meldrum is a, is in, um, Idaho and I mean, he's legit biologist. I mean, he works on this stuff. He's got one of the largest collections of footprints and tracks, and he is a legitimate scientist that works on this stuff. So he's taken his chances and he also gets a lot of flack for that because a lot of people give him ridicule that you're looking for a so-called quote unquote mythical creature. Well, you know, I, I had the uh, pleasure of interviewing the gentleman from Mountain Monsters a couple couple years ago at your convention, actually. And, and we were discussing uh, the, the myth aspect of it. And uh, you can tell me whether you agree with this assessment or not, because I'd like to get your input on it. But uh, as we were talking, I said, well, you know, just because you haven't proven that something exists does not mean you've proven it doesn't exist. Exactly. Um, and I think in this circumstance, it's a lot harder to prove that something doesn't exist uh, than to prove that there's because there's a lot of stuff on the table. And I'll tell you a good analogy. And this comes from, uh, you know, several people have said this over the time, but they say if one of these sightings is real over the thousands that have been done across the United States, then it's a real flesh and blood creature. All of these people can't be lying. They saw something. Now, there is misidentification and things, I would say, but I'm sure that they've seen something. And the Patterson-Gimlin footage that was shot in the late 60s, 
has never been debunked or proven to be a hoax. And they've had many people analyze that film footage, and they've never been able to prove that that was a hoax. So that's that's something there. Plus, I mean, there there are a wealth of of plaster cast footprints and, oh, and, and, and their and, samples. You know, anthropologists and things have looked at those, and they can't explain why there's dermal ridges. They can't explain why there's this mid tarsal break that appears in several tracks. They can't explain how a barefoot, large foot uh, cast or track um, is out in the middle of the woods where nobody is. And I've personally found these tracks on several occasions, and nobody was in that part of the woods. It's a very dense area, and that's something I can't explain. So I, I would say that that you're sold on on the belief that there is a bipedal um, creature living out in the woods that that people identify as Bigfoot. I would say that there is a bipedal creature of some kind um, in the woods. I just, I'm not sure what it is. I see. Uh, I'm not so sure it's, it's as pop culture likes to paint the picture, you know, maybe in the Pacific Northwest, but I think in southern other parts of the country, I think that they're different sizes. I don't think that you're getting one Bigfoot that looks the same across the country. I think you're getting different ones according to what they eat, according to what their habitat is. And I think that's what people need to come to think of. It's not going to look the same everywhere. Just like bear, just like any other animal, they're not going to look the same in every part of the country. Right, because, I mean, any uh, uh, biological organism changes to adapt to its environment. a product of their environment. And what's always fascinated me is that uh, these stories have, have been told for thousands of years, long before there's any communication between continents. Yes, and you really got to put a lot of uh, water into these Native American uh, legends and because when you look at that Native American stuff, you're sitting there and you're going, okay, they, they saw this as a very spiritual creature. And, you know, they recognized this. And they, there were drawings on cave walls of these big creatures. So, I mean, there's a lot there that there's no reason – to hoax this stuff. And I'm sure there's plenty of hoaxers out there. I'm not saying that. I'm sure there's tons of them that have been hoaxed over the years. But I've talked to several eyewitnesses that had no idea that somebody saw something and they saw the same exact thing within 50 yards of the other person's sighting. And they had no knowledge of that sighting. And they had nothing to gain from it. Well, now... uh what would you say about our limited ability to gather information? Uh, not not using technology, but I'm I'm talking about from our, our own biology, our own senses. Uh, how does our sight and and sound and smell compare to other creatures? Well, I, you would look at at something like Bigfoot. And, you know, and, and, I, and people use the term Bigfoot. And I like you. I use that in interviews, but I'm not so sure that's what we need to call it. You know, I think, you know, sometimes we go with pop culture and everybody looks at it as a cartoony creature and they don't give it enough credit as being alive and well and, and have, you know, senses. But if you look at it, it's going to be the apex creature in the woods. It's been in the woods for hundreds of years. It has adapted to the woods. It knows how to live in the woods. 
And it would be no different than if we know how to go get Chinese takeout somewhere. It knows what to do. So it's a product of its environment. And I always kind of give that analogy. If you ask somebody, hey, where's good Chinese takeout? They're going to tell you. Yeah. Well, Bigfoot, in the instance of being in the woods, is going to know where to eat. It's going to know what to eat. It's going to know when to eat it and what time of year to eat it. And it's going to know where to hide. It's going to know where to do whatever. And I've been in some parts of the woods where it could literally lay flat and you would be five feet from it and not know it's there. So, I mean, the, 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 the argument of it, it can't exist because there's no place for it is not, that tells me that they've never been in the woods. I, I, I would agree with that because, um, we're, we're limited and then, uh, it's, it's interpreting that limited information and possibly we're doing it wrong. And I'll tell you another really, really good point to make with this. We walk through life with blinders on and we, we live in our own little bubble. And as long as nothing interrupts that little bubble, then we're okay. But if something comes in and it's like, hey, I think aliens may exist. I think UFOs may exist. You know, I think Bigfoot's here. Then we're going to, that's going to disrupt some people's bubbles. And that's going to go against what they think about. And then now you're in a whole different ballgame. So do you think possibly that some people don't believe simply because they don't want to? It's uncomfortable. It's easier for them not to believe because they, they have less to, to disrupt their bubble or their, their thought process. Now, what do you think it would take to uh, make a believer out of people short of just a full-blown uh, Sadly enough, you're going to have to have some type of body. And I'm not going to get into the whole pro-kill or not uh, type of situation because there are researchers out there that are pro-kill where they literally want to take a specimen for science. And then there are others that say we should not take a specimen for science, but they are for having some type of body. But I think it's going to come down to a body of some kind, whether it's hit by a car or something of that nature, it's going to take a portion of a body or a body for science to actually prove that it exists and DNA research done and all that kind of stuff. So empirical evidence then. It's going to have to be. And that's just because uh, Bigfoot over the years has been built into a pop culture spectacle. And I think that's what it's going to take. It's going to take actual physical evidence. I mean, we presented hairs over the years. There's been tracks that have very good evidence. There's been uh, vocalizations that they can't explain, but they still won't acknowledge that there's something weird going on in the woods. So, so rather than acknowledge that it could be some, an unknown creature, they just interpret it as you know, a version of something that, that they already know about. Exactly. Or they'll say, well, it, it's, you know, it, it's not a, it's not any type of ape or it's not any type of creature. We don't know what that is. Maybe it's fungus. If it's a hair, you know, it's just, they kind of write it off. And I understand. I mean, the scientific community has a reputation to uphold. And if they go around saying that, you know, unicorns exist, then, you know, people are going to start to call into question their ability. So they're very cautious. Uh, understandably so, I guess. Now, uh, there's a lot of different schools of thought about exactly what this creature is and what it can do. Uh, one of the explanations that, that you hear is that uh, Bigfoot isn't really a terrestrial creature at all. It's, it's some sort of alien or, or it passes between dimensions. And, which, and they, they use this to explain why its body's never been found. 
What's your thoughts on that? Well, and, and a lot of people in the Bigfoot community call that the woo. You know, they believe in the weird things. But I've talked to one of our guests uh, about it, Ron Moorhead. He uh, recorded the Sierra Sounds and, I mean, some of the best Bigfoot vocalizations in history that there's no explanation for and science still would not acknowledge it. So, but he is a very good uh you know, supporter of that other side. And he thinks it's not as simple as it being a flesh and blood creature. He thinks that there is some type of paranormal aspect to it, whether it be interdimensional or higher being or something of that nature. He, he does not go down the rabbit hole and say, well, it don't exist in that realm. He's open to everything. And I think as an investigator, you have to be open to certain things like that, but you kind of got to also pull it back and have some type of control mechanism there and, and almost like a filter of some kind where you say, okay, well, I'm going to look at everything as evidence because that's in, as an investigator, that's the best way to be. Let's look at everything as, in, as evidence. Let's not write anything off, and then let's let the evidence speak for itself. So, I mean, am I a supporter of the paranormal aspects? Well, I'm not against it. But I'm also, I also think that it's – Probably a flesh and blood creature of some kind. But but you do acknowledge the possibility. I do acknowledge the possibility because, I mean, UFOs exist. They The government has now admitted that they exist. So who's to say that this is not something that was brought from one of these crafts? Who knows? And maybe years ago, maybe decades, maybe hundreds of years ago that it was transplanted to Earth. And now it's here as a living, breathing creature. So we don't know. We have no clue. So what would be the best way to start if, if you developed an interest in uh, cryptids? Where would be the best place to start to learn about them? Stay off the Internet. <laughs> okay? <laughs> There's so much regurgitated BS on the Internet. Unless you're reading a reputable researcher's site, stay off of it. Get on Amazon. Get you some books. And use the internet to find the authors that you need to read about, like the originals, the original folks, like John Green and Dr. John Bendernagel and uh, Renee DeHinden and Grover Krantz. All of those guys really made some uh, traction in the Bigfoot world back in the day, but, and they wrote books. Those are good places to start because they give you the original stories. John Green gathered, I don't even know how many eyewitness accounts, and it's a good place to read about it because he documented them very, very detailed. Start with those places. The books are out there. They're on Amazon. You can get them. And then that way you're not just reading stuff that people recycle for their web pages. Now, if it's reputable sites where, that you know that are good researchers, then that's fine too. But be very careful with the Internet. Well, what would constitute a, a credible source? I mean, I know you mentioned these, these authors. Um, the, the ability to weigh what's real and what's not, the, the ability to document what's real and what's not, and the ability not to be persuaded either way by somebody's thoughts or, or uh, words. And these guys were very good at that. They were out there on the, in the field doing the research, talking to eyewitnesses, gathering the evidence, and they were actually making strides in the field. And there's still a lot of those people out there today, but you're not going to find a lot of them on the Internet where you can actually look at all of their research. A lot of the people document it themselves and keep it. Uh, the North American Wood Ape Associate, or Association, um, I think it's actually the North American Wood Ape Conservancy now, 
they're doing crazy, good, detailed, scientific work, and they're very strict about it. And they have a web page, and I would highly recommend people read that because they put out a whole document, a whole basically a small book that you can print that details sightings in their research area. So, I mean, definitely go with somebody that's digging into the research and actually doing it, you know, out there in the field doing things. So now, uh, on your personal experiences with your, your research and everything, what are some of, of I guess, uh, I hate to hesitate to use the word favorite, but what do you think are some of, of your more, uh, I guess you could say, beneficial high yield investigations that you've done over the years? Um, well, you got to kind of go with, um, you got to kind of go with, I like the foot, the footprints, the tracks. Yes. Um, cause if I'm out in the middle of the woods and there's nobody else around and I know and nobody's been there in a long time and I find a track, then that's going to be something I'm going to start to look at a little more detailed. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the vocalizations. I'll leave a recorder sometimes 48 hours in the woods, come back, collect it and listen and analyze it. And you'll hear vocalizations that are not for known animals like fox or coyote, uh, things like that. So those right there, to me, are good starting points. Uh, The eyewitness accounts, as long as you do a proper interview and talk to them properly, yeah, they're great. They're great pieces of evidence. But they're a good place to start, and now you got to go look at the area. Now you got to treat it like a crime scene, like an investigator would, and let's go out there and see what we can find. Now, uh, you mentioned that uh, you investigated in several different spots in Kentucky, for instance. Uh-huh. Are those your, your favorite go-to hot spots to do research? or um, You know, kind of. They're just close for me. Um, that's kind of what I get into. They're close for me. So I've got several research areas that I work with at different times in the year, and uh, they're, they're basically – very close for me. So I can consistently work on them and I can consistently document those. So, I mean, that's kind of what I do. I'll go anywhere. I'm I'm not opposed to going anywhere and working with anybody as long as they're legitimate. And I don't want anybody to, you know, be a hoaxer or anything like that. And I'm very careful with that because, you know, reputations are very important. Well, this is true. Yeah. You want to maintain as high credibility as possible. And, and, you know, I not only have the reputation of me as an investigator, but I also have the reputation of Cryptid Con, Wild Man Days, and other events that we do. And I don't want, you know, I don't want to make anything look like we're just out there for a show or, or a hoax or, or, or anything of that nature. We take everything very seriously. And that's kind of why we built the convention, is we wanted a place where people could come not only to see some of these people that they saw on television, but also to... Uh, not only learn from these researchers, but to network. Networking is very important, and I don't think there's enough of it in the Bigfoot community. So, uh, speaking of, of, of Crypticon, uh, it's more than just, uh, well, you, you basically highlighted it. It's more than just entertainment, although um, I've been there a couple times myself. It's very entertaining. It's, it's a good show, uh, a good time. But you can get beneficial knowledge to further your own research or possibly get new avenues for research? Would that be a fair assessment? We try to bring in folks from all areas of cryptozoology. Um, We also support the UFO community with Crypticon. Um, So we try to bring in a little bit of everything from ghosts to Bigfoot to Loch Ness Monster to uh, 
monsters uh, all across the country, Mothman and different things like that. So we want it to be a place where somebody that has a small interest or a budding interest in cryptozoology has a place where they can come and they can let it grow. Because there was nothing out there like that. And I, I know just from us three, you know, me, Lee, and Jennifer, and building CryptidCon, we all have an interest, and we have had an interest, but we want we didn't have a place to play, as you would say, you know, to learn and to network and to meet people. So essentially, that you you made one for yourself to pull people in. Exactly, and- like I said before, uh, it's kind of like a kid in a candy store for me because you know, like Ron Moorhead. I get to pick these people up from airports and things and have long amounts of time with them in the car that I can actually share information with and gain knowledge from. So, yes, it is. You know, that is kind of what we did. But we wanted it for everybody, you know. So let me let me explain our kind of ideology behind it. There's three different ways to experience Crypticon, okay? If you're a researcher, you can come and you can network, Okay. And if, uh, if you are a, say a fan, you know, a, you want to watch the television shows, you read books, we want to give you an outlet to come and meet these folks, get autographs and things of that nature. And then if you are somebody that's actively wanting to find out more about it, or you're a new researcher, you can come and listen to these seminars and you can learn and you can actually grow from this. So it's an educational experience for some. I mean, I've literally had people bring notepads into some of these seminars and take notes. Well, I would imagine that would be valuable because if that's your purpose for being there, you want to have as much information right. as possible. And that's what we wanted. We wanted to give them content that they could actually learn and grow from. Well, that uh, that sounds like a fantastic time. I mean, we literally have two vendor rooms. Um, so, I mean, it's it's really, really grown. And it, it's fastly approaching the time when we're going to have to even get a bigger space because we're growing so big. Well, now, uh, how would people uh, reach out and get information? Cryptidcon.com. I hesitate to even ask this, but because uh, because it, it seems for well for less conversation that uh, Bigfoot seems to be your favorite cryptid. But do you do you do you have a favorite? Well, that's not necessarily true. You know, it's just one that I have, I have the ability to research. I research all cryptids. Um, you know, I'm very active in the research community as far as that goes. And, um, you know, I, I do dig in to a lot of different cryptids and because you can't just stick with one thing. Um, you know, I, I love all cryptids and, and some of even the most obscure ones I kind of enjoy. Well, I know that toward the western part of the state, there's the uh, the Braxton County monster. Yes, uh, yes, very much so. And, uh, of course, I live in Greenup, Kentucky, so spreading out from there, there's a, a museum up in Point Pleasant for Mothman, and uh, there's several other ones around here. So, um, and this kind of, once you get people excited about this and interested in this stuff, it kind of begs the next question. How do you start going out into the field? Do you have any recommendations of uh how to begin, and how to be safe doing it. Well, and that's what a lot of people don't give enough credit to. When when you're going out into the field and you're investigating these things, the problem with that is you're going into the woods, mm-hmm. usually, uh, by yourself, maybe with a team, but you have to be prepared for the wilderness. And not so much uh, cryptids, but 
you know, the flesh and blood creatures are far scarier than some of those. You know, you have uh, bear and, and rattlesnakes and stuff in different parts of the country, of the state and country. Even there's even worse things. But you got to kind of know the predators and wildlife in your area when you're doing the research. That way you can avoid those or prepare for them. So definitely be prepared for the woods. You know, you don't want to just go out without a backpack or water or something to keep yourself hydrated or safe. So I guess it would be a good idea to adopt the Boy Scout motto of always be prepared. Always be prepared. That is a great uh, motto to have. That's why they have it. Always be prepared. Uh, And, you know, take a notebook, take a camera, take a recorder. You want to have something to record evidence as well because, I mean, that's why you're out there. Oh, definitely, yes. And uh, eyewitness accounts, of course, are valuable, but uh, anything tangible has a tendency to add more credibility to a story. Now, do you think – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, Yeah, and like I was saying, you want to have some way to to keep track of this stuff. Uh, I also recommend people have a map that they can log sightings and things on because you want to see a pattern there. Has it been your experience that uh, these cryptids follow a stable pattern, kind of like a migration area? If there is something to the sighting, yes, 100%. So uh, even though there's there's not been anything people would think of as empirical evidence, there are records that show that the migration patterns would seem to be a real creature? Right. Um, That one, that's a hard one, you know, so... um, you know, you, you kind of look at it and you're like, well, there may be something here. Or you also got to log on the other side of things and you got to try to explain it. So, you know, you kind of got to dance on both ends. And uh, uh, what do you think are some uh, good skills for people to develop if they want to start hunting cryptids? I know, of course, we've talked about being prepared. The ability to communicate with people. Um, that's number one. Um, you know, you got to have the ability to talk to somebody and to find out what they're seeing. But some other skills you want to have are uh, good observation skills and just the ability to not be enclosed in your own little bubble where you're not open to any type of, uh, you know, all science says it's not real, so I'm not going to acknowledge it. So you got to have an open mind. Okay, well, that's uh that would seem to to cover the bases there. Now, what is some advice that you've gotten from uh, perhaps when you first started doing this from uh, experienced hunters and researchers that has stuck with you over the years? Keep good notes. Um, That's that's some of the best advice. You know, keep good documentation. Uh, Whether you get a little notebook or something, put a date and time, weather conditions that you're going out in, you know, keep good notes because that will come in handy eventually. Uh, when you're looking back at your notes, you may find patterns in that. So keep good notes, keep evidence, take, uh, you know, take documentation tools out, camera, recorder, uh, stuff like that. And then just be safe, you know, in the woods because you're literally in the woods where there are no rules. Exactly. Yes. And I, and I was thinking we were talking about this earlier, being prepared even taking some uh, mosquito repellent, something as simple as that. And uh, people also got to realize that they're not at the top of the food chain when you're in the woods because, you know, we don't have claws and teeth. Well, that, that's a good, a good point to make because uh, not only, and, and you mentioned this earlier, uh, Bigfoot, for instance, you know, anywhere from seven to nine feet tall by reports, 
obviously is dangerous, but coyotes can be very dangerous. They Yes. In different times of the year, they are very aggressive. Uh, I went out not too long ago, and there was coyote everywhere. So, I mean, you got to be aware of that stuff. If you're going out at night, that is a whole different ballgame. Now, if you're going out today, like a little day hike, You'd probably be okay. Not not too many things going on, but when you're out at nighttime, the nocturnal creatures come out and they they are very good at what they do and they can see when you can't. So you know uh, they can smell you before you're ever around, and you got to be aware of that stuff. And don't be afraid to say I'm ready to go home and then go home <laughs> and be safe. Well, sometimes discretion is the better part of valor because you can get in a dangerous situation. And knowing when to extricate yourself, I would say, would be a valuable skill. 100% on that. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share with us? I think that's good. Because I think we've covered a, a good base here and uh, you know, give people some information, maybe uh, offset a little bit of the misinformation. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of what I'm out there. You know, we, we try to, to be uh, – flag bearers for the cryptozoology community because i mean it's there's a lot of good people out there that do things but then there's a lot of people that have their own best interest in mind and not so much anything to further the field so we kind of try to you know help right and and that's uh, uh, a laudable pursuit there and you should be commended for that because is it safe to say that uh, the field of cryptozoology isn't taken as seriously as it should be simply because there are a lot of people faking evidence or reaching too far. I think it comes down to it's viewed as a cartoony, laughable um, field. And it's done that because of various ways, you know, you've got, um, you know, pop culture in general Mm -hmm. and with commercials and things, uh, movies and people are, and then sometimes they're depicted in bad ways. Right. So, I mean, you uh, you got to kind of take that with a grain of salt because that don't do anybody any type of credit. It, it hurts sometimes. I see. And, you know, it's, you, you always got pop culture making jokes of things. Well, I mean, it's, it's a broad range from Harry and the Hendersons to the legend of Boggy Creek. Yes. Uh, the extremes that you mentioned there, and, and neither of those are 100% accurate depictions, I guess would be fair to say. I would say Boggy Creek is probably the closer of the two. I see. Uh, because, you know, it was based on fact. Mm-hmm. But again, it is horror film. So you got to kind of, again, take it with a grain of salt. I see. And that, that's a good way to look at it. Take it, but take it with a grain of salt. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. And you have a wonderful evening. Thank you. This is Charles Romans. And on behalf of myself and our guests, thank you for joining us on this walk through the shadows of legend. If you like what you heard, please follow us and visit our website at shadowsoflegend.com and support our Patreon page to help keep the content flowing. And if you would like to be a guest and share your own brush with a stranger paranormal, don't hesitate to email us and include a contact number. The strange and surreal, the normal and the paranormal are all aspects of the world in which we live. As you reflect upon the stories we have shared, keep in mind that the people sharing these stories are actual real people just like us were the stories shared compelling enough to be given credibility or should they be relegated to the deeper part of the shadows but when determining this it might be a good idea to keep an open mind because when we look around we might discover that our own world is less brightly lit than we once thought until next time i'll be waiting for you in the shadows of legend